0: Hello and welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I'm Pastor Greg Miller and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit NHF Church and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, just when you realize, Nick, there's like two, three verses. How can you pull something out of a hat? There's a lot there. And actually, we could spend probably two or three weeks here. And so we're going to wrap up Ephesians, though, this morning as we are wrapping up into Christmas and season. And in the new year, we'll head into the book of John. But what you find with Ephesians is it's a letter that's addressed to the church at large. It's not so much an individual. You see that in Scripture when you read to the 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy, Paul is writing to Tim exactly and to him specifically. What you get in Ephesians is kind of a church-wide focus, is this is the church and for the church. It's for us as individuals as well, but he's covering everybody, meaning no one's really excluded. It's not a personalized it is, but it's to the whole church body. And so if we were to summarize, because we need to do that to really get into where we're at this morning, you summarize with chapter 1 really being all about the big picture. That it is, this is what God has done for us. Paul gives a brief intro and he says, this is what God has done. And he has sent his son, he shares the gospel with the church to remind them of the awesomeness of what God has done. And he closes chapter one with a prayer to the church. And what you notice in that prayer is that he desires, and you see his heart on display, that the church would continue to grow in a knowledge of God. Not in a knowledge of themselves, not in a change of their circumstances, but that they would know God further, and then he bridges into chapter 2. And chapter 2 is kind of, okay, here's the big picture, chapter 1. Chapter 2 is all about the here and the now. And the realizing that in chapter 2, what Paul's focus on is goes from big picture to the reality is, why did God do chapter 1? Why did God send his son? Why did he? Because we were sinners. Because we were just like the world around us without hope, without anything And then chapter 2 kind of goes into the reality of what is it about then? It's all about unity. And what unifies us then is Jesus. Chapter one's the big picture, what God has done. Chapter 2 focuses on you were just like this, and in fact, you're saved by God's grace. Not your own doing, nothing you have done, but God's grace through faith, which he gives. And then we're unified all on Jesus. Why do we gather on Sundays as a church body? Jesus. It's not for anything other than Jesus, to worship him, and chapter 2 is about that, and to realize that it's not some coincidence or happenstance. You're not some afterthought to God, but you read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and read the next verse, you were prepared for good works ahead of time, meaning God knew you before you ever were, that he desired you to know him, and the only way to have a relationship with him that he knows is if he sends his son to die, and so you're not some blob, you're not some mistake, you're exactly who God designed you to be, and you're prepared beforehand for good works to work them out. And he goes on to the unity factor. And then he jumps into his story. Paul gives kind of his testimony after that. Big picture, chapter one, chapter two, the nitty gritty. We were just like that without any hope. But God, through grace, saves us with our faith, prepared to do good works. We're unified through Jesus. Paul says, This is why I'm an ambassador. This is why I do what I do. He gives his bio. bio. And then he gives to the point of, Ephesians 3, and if you pause in chapter 6, you jump to chapter 3, he kind of starts this right in verse 10, and he reads this way, he who in chapter 3, I'm jumping ahead of myself. In 3 verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Paul's saying, this is what I do. This is why I exist. This is what I'm about. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He's reminding them. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul has reminded them, I do all this for God's glory. Don't lose heart because I'm going through hardship. When Paul wrote this letter, he's not sitting in an office. He's not sitting in a library. He's under house arrest. He's in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. And so the man who's writing this letter, as he's dictating, is who we're going to talk about later in a moment, but he's not in some cushy little job. He's actually sitting in prison. He's remembering the churches, and his heart longs for them, and he's reminding them, here's who I am, and and though you may pray for my affliction, don't lose heart over it. Don't lose heart that I'm in, in chains. And then he gives another prayer, and he says in this prayer, he doesn't ask for himself, He asks for them so that Christ may dwell in your heart's church through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul, in the midst of suffering and persecution, is praying actually for the others to know God even more so. That's his constant prayer. It's the same one that I pray here constantly for us as a church is this prayer in chapter 3. Not that our circumstances would change so much, but that we would grow in our knowledge and love of God. Because the more we grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him, actually the outpouring and the reality and the effect is we go and love others. And that's what Paul's point is, that you would know God. If you know him and seek after him and place him at the foremost, well, then the rest will come into play and will naturally work itself out. And so Paul says, do you see the pattern he's giving? Is you see how good God is and what he's done? Do you see we're saved by his awesome grace through through faith, that he's prepared for us good works? And do you realize that if we seek him and know him, we'll have everything we need? In the midst of that, he goes then to, okay, now how do you live in the here and now? That's great in the, you know, let's look around us, let's theoretically look at this, but how do we deal with the day in, day out stuff? And so Paul does that with chapters 4 through 6. He goes, here's how you live in the here and the now. Here's how you live with day-to-day reality. How do you do that? With unity. Chapter 4 is all about unity, all about sharing with one another, really living out our lives in service to others, that he calls us to unify, calls us to have a love for all Christians, not just the ones we like and the ones we get along with, but all Christians, meaning if they know Christ, have submitted to Christ, have made him Lord of their life, then we're to love the brothers and sisters. There's a mutual submission, which we don't like because it means we don't always get what we want. There's a mutual submission to one and another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says, I have immense freedom to do anything and all things. The big issue in Corinth, one of the issues was some of the gods were, there was meat. Cows, animals were sacrificed to the gods. They would chop it up and they would sell it on the open market. And some Christians had issues with this. This was sacrificed to this idol. I can't eat this. Other Christians would say, I've got no problem. That burger looks really tasty and they would eat it. And Paul is saying, look, you have the freedom to do it. It doesn't doesn't contradict. However, for the sake of the other, you mutually submit. And if it's going to cause your brother or sister to stumble, don't do it. Just because you have freedoms in Christ, which you do, does not mean you take it and lord it over, because then someone whose conscience, who isn't quite there yet, feels guilty and convicted, and you're causing them to stumble. And so Paul says, you have immense freedom, so we're to mutually submit to one another. And this doesn't just, he starts off with the church body, all of us, here, present in a church. We mutually submit. We care for one another. Preferences, we all have them. What color should the carpet be? What color should the chairs be? But we put those aside for the sake of the body of Christ, for unity. We mutually submit and say, okay, but what's going to be the best for all of us? And though I have a preference on color, it'll never be yellow. I promise you that. But if yellow was the deal, then I would suffer for Jesus and say, okay, we can have yellow. But he's saying we mutually submit, starting with all of us. And then he goes into the nitty-gritty of, well, we're also have life outside of church, right? We go to our jobs. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. And so he goes, we're to mutually submit, not just in church with brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, but then in marriage, it works out the same way. Husbands, you're to mutually submit to your wives. Wives, mutually submit to your husbands. There's roles to play. And we looked at that aspect that Paul starts off explaining the big picture with the church body. We do this. Now, within that same vein of brother love, we do this in our marriages, we don't lord it over, guys, with our wives. And wives, it's a beautiful thing to actually submit to your husbands, not out of, obe- just out of obedience, yes, but not out of them lording it over you. Guys, we're called to serve and love our wives so much to that we would die for them. I Meaning, it's not my preferences all the time. It's considering what's going to be best for my wife in this situation, in this decision. And he talks about this all through chapters 4, 5, and 6. And finally, with work, How do you deal with a boss you don't like? And he goes, well, you serve them. You submit mutually. And in work, you look at humility. You pray for them and you serve. And we've looked at that. And finally, last week, Pastor Greg looked at that armor of God of, okay, in all of this, how do you then go about day to day? Well, you got to prepare for battle. There's a war going on. Now, the war is already won, so we actually deal with different battles day to day until Christ comes again, but you have to be prepared. And he talks about the different pieces that you would put on to prepare. Jesus kind of alluded to this in Luke, where he said, you must pick up your cross daily to follow me. And he's saying, in reality, you must, in a sense, die to yourself daily and follow me, because you're going to go about your day and you're going to see things and you're going to go through things that you don't like and you don't want. And what God is saying, it's not about you. It's never been. But we tend to have a world in a sin nature that says, it is all about me and what I want and what I desire. And so we put on our armor, when we put on all the components and they fit together. We're equipped and we're prepared not to fight people because our battle isn't against each other. Our battle is against this principality of darkness and so we're prepared to serve. And Greg did a great job of that. It's about serving others. It's prepared in season, out of season to give an answer of the hope we have to call on unity. Jesus said, you will know my disciples by their love for one another. And sometimes churches are a little bit, they got issues, right? I've been in churches long enough now to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when it gets a good, it is awesome to see, as Mike Baker and Greg Newman shared, when you see the body of Christ, it can do awesome and amazing things. Now, and the vice versa is also true that when we get out of line, when we get a little distracted, we can be some of the meanest behind the scenes. And yet, God still says the hope of the world is right here the church. Because no one has what the church does. They have Christ. They're all about Jesus. And what's our greatest need is salvation, is hope. Just like Samaritan's Purse, the biggest need is the gospel. That's first and foremost to share the hope that is found in Christ. And so we're equipped. We're empowered to share that hope in season and out, sometimes with words, sometimes with deeds. But we're all called to unity. And so when it finally comes to the end of chapter 6, which is where we find ourselves, at the end, his end focus in chapter 6, verse 18, says this. And Greg mentioned this briefly. I'm going to piggyback on him and then go into the last part. It says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, which means making your petitions for all the saints. And also for me, and here's Paul's prayer. It's not to change his circumstances for the third time. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. His prayer is so for all saints, for all people, and pray that I have boldness and clarity of words, that when I open my mouth, it's winsome and it's clear. And so many times in the world we live in, it's a lot about less. We yell and we yell in our culture. It's all about who screams the loudest. And we tend to oil the squeaky wheels because the squeaky wheels squeak really loud. We think if we oil them, we give them attention, they'll go away or they'll stop squeaking. Reality is they're going to keep squeaking. So stop oiling them. Stop listening. Use a kind word. Use your ears twice as much as you speak. But when you do speak, do it with clarity. You can diffuse a whole situation in the way that you talk and speak to someone. James speaks about this with your tongue. It's like two or three ounces And that little slab of mucus gets us in so much trouble. And Paul is saying, here, pray for all the saints. Keep alert in all seasons. In 21, he says, so that you may also know I am what I'm doing. And here is where the history side, the kind of neat side I I like, the side rabbit trail. In verse 21, this is probably where Paul took over writing. So the first part of this letter is actually written by the guy he's about to talk about. But this part is where Paul says, okay, give me the patent. And he goes, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, love with faith from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now we get to point one. Those of you taking notes, that's a really long intro, I know. It's prayer 101. If you're filling out notes, our prayers are not just my prayers. And the truth of the matter is prayer, yes, is for us individually. It's also for us corporately. It's also for all of us to constantly be praying. It's not just your prayers. It's everybody's prayers. And it's amazing when we all start praying for something, the more you pray, that's actually a good thing. And it's good that individually you pray, but corporately we're also called to pray. And there's multiple types of prayers. So we're going to jump around Scripture a little bit this morning, but one of those prayers being adoration. And many of us know these types of prayers. Adoration is just joy, the good things. I'm praying for God's blessing. I'm praying for these good things that are happening to me. That's one type of prayer. Another type of supplication, which Paul mentions, which is praying for others. You're bringing the needs, the petitions of others to God. It's not that God doesn't know, for the record. God sees it. God knows it. God knows what you're going through. And yet, as a good parent... Do you not love it when your kids come to you and tell you things and say, hey, I hurt myself. It's like, yeah, I saw you just crash right off the table. I hit myself right here. I see that. But yet a good father who God is for us wants us to come with a childlike innocence and tell him. He sees it. He knows. And yet we're called to bring the needs of others before God and not just the ones we know about. There's lots of brothers and sisters in Christ who are all across the U.S., who are all across the world There's some in the Middle East under persecution. There's some in China who are in an underground church who are still in persecution. There's some in North Korea. And I've talked about that before, that in the the work camps that they find out you're a Christian, which are pretty well known because they tend to be self-sacrificing of leveraging their food and giving it to others who need it. They single them out and beat them and take them out first. And so we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are afflicted around the world. There's some we know here and now, and we're called to pray for them. There's also petitions, We bring before God specific intangible needs. And then there's confession, which we don't like as much. But I tend to think we tend to lose sight of that part. And confession is just that. It's acknowledging and bringing our sin, our issues to God, acknowledging them. And guess what? We all have it. We all fall short of God's glory. It's very clear. And even when you become a Christian, guess what? Do you still sin? Yes, yes. What does 1 John 1 9 say that if we confess our sins and bring them, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have but to ask. And many times, sometimes we just don't bring it up. Why? It's embarrassing. It's shame. And yet that's one of the key parts of prayer is not just joy, it's not just praying for others, not petitioning God for specific needs. It's also confessing, I've fallen short. And sometimes we don't know where we fall short. There is sometimes we are oblivious. So when you pray for that, Lord, help me be aware, be mindful. He will make it very clear and he'll put it in front of you to see it as he sees it. But the more you come to know God, the more you see yourself, the more you see as chapter one of Ephesians speaks about how awesome that God did this. I so don't deserve this. And the more I come to know God, the more I see about his character, the more I realize, man, do I fall short. But how awesome is that he still chooses me to be his ambassador and uses even the most corruptible thing that I am because I am a human and a sinner. He still chooses to use me, not on account of what I did or what I've said, none of that. But as Ephesians 2 speaks to because of the, the preordained ahead of time, the good works prepared. So you have these. We know one of these prayers, our prayers, one of those being that the Lord's prayer, How many of us know, familiar with this one? All right, why don't you repeat it with me? We're gonna use, I like, I'm like King James is how I think I memorize it. I like trespasses, so we're gonna start. I'll start, just say it right with me, ready? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Corporate prayer right there. We just did it. Our prayers together. And it's a model, actually, of prayer that Jesus gives us specifically in Scripture. And if you follow through, he starts off, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, meaning praising him. He starts there because that's where the focus ought to be. Not on, Lord, I got this, 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 and this. It's like, no, who are you talking to? And reminding ourselves of who we're talking to we read it together there's value in this corporate prayer there's value in the multitude praying and you if you hold your finger here and you jump to the book of galatians which is one book before and in chapter 4 of galatians paul also wrote this one of his first letters it's probably one of my it's one of my favorites just because he's very He's blunt in this one, and I think it's when he was earlier saved, one of his earliest letters. But in chapter 4, in verse 4 of Galatians, he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, what we're celebrating, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he sent Jesus, his son, born to a woman who was under the law. Okay, the law code was there to kind of hold and say, this is sin, this is an issue. And the only way to get to heaven is if you're absolutely perfect. You don't miss one spot, you don't say one lie, you don't think one bad thought. Under the law, he has sent his son to redeem those who were under the law. So he sent his son, born of the woman, functioning under the Old Testament law code so that he could redeem us who were in the law, who were under it so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons of God, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And what that whole point's about is that Jesus was sent, born of a woman, under the law, under the old covenant law code. So Jesus then never lies, never steals. He's perfectly God, perfectly human, just like Adam and Eve were. They were without sin and blameless until they decided to sin. And guess where all of us have inherited our sin nature from Adam and Eve from the beginning of time until now. You inherited it from your parents who inherited it from their parents who inherited, inherited, inherited. Where was Jesus born? Born of the Virgin Mary, which means he was conceived not by natural means, but by supernatural. So he was born into the world under the law, and then he fulfills the law. Like the first Adam, he is perfect, sinless, blameless, because he's God himself. How does he then redeem us? Well, he goes to the cross. And Jesus said, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. What are you and I under the law? We are cursed. Why? Because we're sinners. And so because of the curse, that very first curse in Genesis chapter 3, we are then cursed all the way through. God said right in the beginning that he would redeem, he would make right that curse. What does he do? He sends his one and only son born to the old law, old covenant, to fulfill it, and then the only way that you and I can get to heaven is if we're, one, absolutely perfect, which from the moment you're born, Psalm 51 says, you're toast. You are not even good there. I have two little kids. I can vouch for this. (laughs) You're a sinner, so you're never perfect. Jesus, born under the law, was not conceived by natural means but by supernatural, which means there was not the inherited sin nature. And he lived the absolute perfect life. So the only other way for you and I to get to heaven is if there's a perfect substitute, like a substitute teacher who steps in and fills in the gap. And so Jesus says, all right, I'm willing to stand in the gap, to take what is the punishment of sin, death. So I'll take the curse because curse is everyone who's hung on a tree, which is why he was hung on a cross. Life is found in the blood as the blood poured out, that blood then was covered over our sin. And as Jesus went into the ground, he faced death just like you and I, but he just didn't stay dead. He rose, which is the linchpin of Christianity. You disprove the resurrection, you disprove all of Christianity. And so he says he's able to redeem those under the law and adopt us, not by anything we have done, as Ephesians 2 says, but by his son Jesus and what he has done. And he chooses to do that he didn't need to. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And so then he says, not only, this is where grace comes in. Not only does he redeem your life, he then says, you're a son or daughter of the most high God, which is super empowering, which is the reality that God is more values, a relationship with you than a ritual. Some of us say, well, I just have to go to church. I just have to pray this prayer. I just da, 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 da. It's like, no, God cares more about the relationship with you. Because that's who we are with him. And he does about a ritual of just doing the rituals and following through. How do I pray? Do I have to hold my hands like this, bow my head? My daughter said, Nick, Dad, you gotta bow your head. Okay, Taylor. And she's looking at me. Taylor, why aren't you? No, you do it, Dad. Okay. But God cares about our relationship with him more than he does about a ritual. And there's nothing sweeter than when my daughter prays at night with me. Now, she doesn't do it all the time, but sometimes I'll pray, Dad. I pray for Carson and Haley and Mommy to feel better, and I pray. And it's sweet, and that's what God wants. Not perfect English, not perfect sentences, run-on sentences, frustration, tears, all of it. He sees it. He knows it. But there's no greater joy to him than when we come to him and seek him and pray And so many times, that's the easiest thing to just pass off and not do and neglect, and really, it should be the first thing that we do in all situations, in and out of season. And if we hold there and we jump to the book of James, meaning go to the right, a couple of books, go to Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Hebrews, and then you get James chapter 1, obedience kind of trumps faith to a degree because I can have faith in a lot of things. And yet, if I truly believe faith says that I actually follow through with it. And James says this in chapter 1, verse 22, "'But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in the natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing.'" He goes on to explain what religious and saying. It doesn't do any good to just have a bunch of faith. I have a bunch of faith. Yeah, go eat, drink, be merry, because I'm not taking care of you. Faith says, no, you do something. Do something with it. And what Paul is saying here at the end of Ephesians, when he's talking about this whole prayer life, when he's speaking to the end of the church, he ends it with praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert. All perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, everybody. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. Pray. That is Paul's charge. At the end of the chapter in Ephesians, he starts off with, look at how good God is and what he's done. Let me talk about this prayer and pray for you to know who God is. Let me share a little bit more and let me pray for you yet again and show you and desire for you to know who God is. And now let me conclude this whole letter of how do you live in this world? How do you do it? Pray. Pray comprehensively. In a sense, pray in all occasions with all kinds of prayer requests for all of God's people. Comprehensively, meaning what you know and the facts that you have, pray it, bring it. Comprehensive. Give it to God. All of it. You may feel like you're emotionally vomiting on God. I got this list. Well, then give the list. He can handle it. And sometimes you go and talk with God and you're just giving everything under the sun. And some of those aren't very kind words. It's like he can handle it. All he wants is your heart. And so you pray comprehensively in all things. And two, you pray in alignment. Just like we said the Lord's Prayer, which is found in Matthew 6, verses 9. Pray in alignment. In a sense, pray in the Spirit, as it says at other points. There is such a thing in a sidebar called a prayer language some of us are familiar with, some of us have no idea what that is. And it's really between you and God. Many times it's encouraged at home that if you have that gift of prayer language, great. But at home, you use that and you pray to God. First Thessalonians talks about this concept of pray without ceasing. And really what that's focusing on is that is the posture of your heart. It's not that you're constantly walking down the street praying, 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 praying. I don't know anyone who does that. I'll pray in the shower. I'll pray in the car. But really what he's focusing in on there in 1 Thessalonians is as you pray in alignment, as you pray without ceasing, it's the posture of prayer. It's the attitude of your heart that in every situation you're constantly praying that you find yourself wrestling. You pray. You find yourself at the grocery store. i got to get through this line. You start praying. Okay, give me some patience. You're on 140 or you're going down by Baltimore and you're in heavy traffic and you just want to just cut someone off. You start praying. That's the pray without ceasing. It's the attitude of the heart. It's the posture of us, of constantly praying in and out of every situation, alignment. And sometimes in alignment, that means we are silent before God. How many of us like to pray in silence? I feel like there's clicking noises. If I get in silence, I'm like, I, my wife sometimes will go with the kids and she goes, how's it going at home? I'm like, it's too quiet. There's, where's the noise? Where's the music? Where's the background? And, and sometimes an alignment means praying and silence just being, zip your lips and listen. Does that mean he's going to audibly speak to you? No, he may. I have not had that happen to me. But to some, it's the silence. And that's a practice. That's a ca- it's not like you start, okay, I'm going to have 30 minutes of silence. Good luck. If you've never done it, take a minute and watch what a minute's like. It's hard, but you grow. It's Sometimes it's silence. Other times it's just thanksgiving of giving God thanks for whatever in every situation. And other times, it's confessing. Third is to be proactive in prayer. So you're, in one sense, you're comprehensive in your prayer life, as he asked about. It's in alignment with God. It's being proactive. Be alert. Colossians two speaks to this. Paul spoke to this. Be alert. Be in prayer, because as you're communing with God through prayer, he's going to give you the words that in the situations you may find yourself in. I don't know how many times I start quoting scripture or start in a we're talking with someone I'm like, where did that come from? That didn't come from me. It wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit inside of me. Because of prayer life, because of being open and willing to let be God used, proactive, I think there could be something, okay, Lord, I'm just trying to start praying because I don't know what's down the road and around the corner. We don't. But sometimes we have a heads up that we can see, okay, things are moving in a way that I'm not comfortable with, or there could be. There's these indications. I'm just going to be proactive and pray. And then be persistent. Persistence in prayer. Always keep praying. Luke 11, if you jump there, again, I was told you we are going to jump around a little bit. Luke 11, he speaks to this. Verse 5 of chapter 11, he writes, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So how houses worked, you didn't have separate bedrooms, ladies and gentlemen. In the New Testament, you kind of all slept on the same floor. If you ever have kids, it's like, don't knock on the door when you're sleeping. Don't ring the doorbell. They're going to wake up, and they're going to be monsters. It's like, so the guy's saying, who? At midnight, kids are asleep. They're knocking. Hey, psst, I need some food. I've got someone from a journey. And how are you going to respond, don't bother me. i got to get up, and the kids are right here. I'm going to kick them. I'm going to knock them. They're going to turn the lights on. I cannot give up and give you anything. And Jesus says, here's the point, verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Meaning if you keep, hey, I'm going to get louder, you better get up and give me the bread, man. That's God's point. The guy that just says, hey, I need some bread, no, go away, fine. He's saying, no, no, be the guy who's annoying. Who keeps knocking, who keeps pounding, who's going to wake up the kids, who's finally like, that's it, zip it, I'm coming. So you be quiet. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Well, the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And he's explaining. Jesus is saying there, be persistent. Be a pain in the rear end with God. Yes, your pastor said that. (laughs) Be a pain. Bring it constantly. What is the need? Be consistent at all times. There's another point of a parable of a widow. Jesus says, she goes and wants justice. And the guy, the elder of the town is a non-believer, doesn't care about who God is. And the widow constantly berates this man. I want justice. I want this. And he goes, lady, enough. Not because I'm a believer, not because I want to do right, but because you won't leave me alone. I will give you justice. So leave me alone. And Jesus, his whole point is the persistence of it all. Some of you know who George Mueller is. He's an old-school prayer warrior from way back when, 1800s in England. He prayed for 50 years that four of his friends would come to know Christ. Three friends came to know Christ before he died. That fourth friend came to Christ after his death at the funeral. 50 years of praying for the individual to come to know Christ. And they didn't for 50 years. It's like, is it a waste of time? I've spent 50 years on this. So how do we do it? Mueller writes this about how do we pray then? Paul is asking the believers here in verse 18 that part of our weapon, part of our fight in this world, and how to keep ourselves in alignment and keep on alert and to pull it all together is praying at all times in the Spirit to that and keep alert with perseverance. Mueller writes this, I began, therefore, he used to pray. As soon as he'd get out of bed, he would just pray. For 10 years, he'd just get up in the morning, 6 o'clock, maybe 5, and pray. He says, I began therefore to meditate after this time on the New Testament from the beginning. Early in the morning, the first thing I did after having asked a few words of the Lord's blessing upon his precious word was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching as it were into every verse to get blessing out of it, not for the sake of preaching on what I meditated on, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result of this is that there is always a good deal of confession thanksgiving, supplication, or intercession mingled with my meditation on God's word, and that my inner man almost invariably is even sensibly nourished and strengthened, and that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not happy state. And his point is this, that he would get up, instead of reading the Bible, he would just start praying. And he said, instead, I got up, and I opened God's word, and I read it, and I sat in silence. For a few seconds to just think, what in the world did I just read? It's five o'clock in the morning. What did that word mean? And as he would sit and just think on those words, the natural byproduct that he'd start to pray, he'd start to pray for if this brought conviction to his soul, pray for forgiveness. If it brought thanksgiving, he would pray for thanksgiving. If it was whatever, he would bring it up. And instead of being his mind wandering and not really praying for 30, 40 minutes in the last part of the hour, he finally prayed for five minutes, he finds himself praying at all times and at peace and his spirit stirred. And I believe it was him who actually had an orphanage who he never actually said the needs of the orphanage. He just always prayed for it. And on many occasions, God just provided randomly. A bread truck breaks down. Hey, could you use this bread? It's gonna go bad. He's got an orphanage a hundred yards from the, where the truck breaks down. Yeah, I can eat bread. I was just praying for that this morning. But it's the prayer life. And prayer turns you away from what you really want to actually praying for what God wants and him changing you. And as we can finish the first, the last part, Ephesians chapter 21, this prayer side, love for all the saints. That's really what he comes and boils. Paul's last encouragement is: pray and love all the saints, so that you may also know who I am and that I am doing. Tychicus, and beloved brother, and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. It tells you two things about Tychicus, beloved brother. If you highlight, circle that. Faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. He is beloved in the city of Rome, which is hard to do. The church, this man Tychicus, is beloved he is loved by the people he is loved by the church body there and he's saying this is a beloved brother and he's a faithful minister to the lord tells about his character he's faithful he's consistent he is trustworthy and this is who i'm sending to you this man Tychicus doesn't have actually a whole doesn't have any letters in the new testament but in fact he actually traveled with paul on many occasions When Paul talks about his testimony of being shipwrecked, of being beaten and chased and in danger, this man was probably with him. And this is the man Paul's entrusting to say, this is who I'm sending to you. And actually, he was actually in the city of Ephesus and was probably around when Paul first went there. It was probably one of his first converts who attached himself to Paul. He said, he'll tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that how he may encourage your hearts. And here's his final conclusion for us as well Peace be to the brothers, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. It goes back to pointing to love, back to pointing to our love for Christ. That peace he's responding to is the reconciliation with God through Jesus. That's how we receive peace, and that's what he's asking for. And because we have this in place, Paul's benediction is for us to have the fruit of peace, Reconciliation with one another. You read Philippians, it speaks to this peace. Don't worry or stress about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. God doesn't promise yet again to solve any problem. And Paul is not saying God God can He's saying he'll give you peace, shalom, true peace, inner peace to be able to deal with the world around you and the people, and we're called to have peace with one another. The final four wishes of this church is for peace, this, familiar reconciliation, for love. We have the ability to love only because God loved us first. We just actually have to act upon that love towards others, the mutually submitting. It's not just love for the saints who are on our team or who are friendly with. It's loving people, and people are messy, and people are people. And sometimes you're a safe person, and so they emotionally vomit on you. And you're like, what is the deal? They don't like me. No, they probably like you. They probably just realize you're safe. You can handle it. And it's caring for them. It's loving them. Faith in love. Belief and trust. That is what real faith is. Faith and love means belief, trust, I believe it, and I trust it so I actually do something with it. Paul is saying, you With love for all the saints means you have peace with them. You love them. You have faith in love. Trust the truths that are written in here. Trust them. Paul is encouraging them, imploring them, raising the bar on them in a sense of live this out. Button up the intellectual. This is, we want to know what truth is, what that looks like to live in the world. Read through this letter again and again and again. Do it. Don't just read it and agree with it. Say, that's great. Do something with it. And finally, grace, this is the 12th time that if you read through Ephesians, it's the 12th time that grace is mentioned. It starts and ends with grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's kind of an acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We don't receive grace on our own. It is only through God and what Jesus has done. And that grace, when you realize it and you experience it, goes into a growing a deeper love of God. And when you do that, when you grow in your love for God and a deep love for Jesus, we said that's the first and greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. How do you do that? Well, you pray. Because the more you pray, the more it affects you. The more it affects you, the more it gives. And so I want to close out with this quote, and then we'll pray. We'll sing. Keller writes this in his book, Prayer. Experiencing awe and intimacy with God. He says, Prayer also is a kind of tune. Prayer tunes your heart to God. Singing engages the whole being, the heart through the music, as well as the mind through the words. Prayer is also a tune others can hear beside you. When your heart has been tuned to God, your joy has an effect on those around you. You are not proud, cold, anxious, or bored. You are self-forgetful. You're warm, profoundly at peace, and filled with interest. Others will notice, all hear and fear. Prayer changes those around us, because it changes you. You want to know God better? You want to know what's next? You just start communing. You just start praying. And if it's gibberish, it's just like, I don't know how to pray, Lord, da da da, da. Start there. But it's the constant. Prayer is our greatest weapon. Prayer is our greatest asset. Prayer is the reality that we get to talk to the creator of the universe who calls us sons and daughters, and we get to call him dad. And he hears us, and he sees us, and he knows, and he says, keep the persistence, keep coming. You can say, I'm not a great prayer, Nick. I don't know how, to, then you don't have to. Some of the greatest prayers in all of history were ones that didn't think they were that great about prayer. It's consistency. It's daily. It's getting up, dying to ourselves. So as we enter this Christmas season, as we get to this final week of Emmanuel, God, with us, we have the hope that we can talk to the Most High God. We, have overco- we don't overcome the world. God has overcome the world. But because he has, we can go through it. We're called to share that hope in this season to be God's hands and feet. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we are grateful and mindful of the love that you have for us through your son, Jesus that you've called us to prayer, you have called us, this as Paul, implores the church, Lord, and models to them what prayer looks like, and to end with the encouragement that it's about our prayers, all of us. So wherever we may find ourselves, Lord, in our own prayer life this morning, would you challenge us there, where we can always improve every one of us. And so whether we're great prayer warriors, and we get up at dawn, and we pray, or whether we just pray in our cars or here or there, would you just allow that to flourish within our hearts and our souls to have that attitude of prayer, to have an attitude of always in prayer, constantly looking for opportunities to just praise your name. Lord, for those of us who are wrestling with this, how do we do this? Would we just start small? Would you encourage us not to try to fix the whole thing and have a whole hour of meditation and prayer, but to start with five minutes with you? to give the time that we know is best in our schedule to do that and to just make it a habit, would you discipline us in that way? And no discipline at the time, Lord, as you say, seems pleasant, but in the end bears much fruit. And so may we as a church become more and ever more a body of believers who prays comprehensively for the needs, who brings and petitions you, who's with thanksgiving and brings our own shortcomings to you. Now when you hear us and you choose to use us, May we do that ever more in this Christmas season, to have ears to hear people, to just maybe pause with some family members and say, "Can I just pray with you?" and pray a blessing over their life. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.